Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is the Asian Madness Podcast. A podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Before I begin this week's episode, I would like to play a promo for a podcast I have recently discovered. As an Asian podcaster, I love when I discover new podcasts from Asia, especially when it's about true crime. Check it out here. If you're a true crime and mystery fan like me, then you probably already know about America's Zodiac Killer, England's Jack the Ripper, Canada's Wendigo, and Japan's Suicide Forest. But how many of you know of true crime and mystery stories from the Philippines? My name is Derek, and I invite you to listen to Stories After Dark, a podcast where every other week I share such tales from my side of the world, from Chop Chop Ladies and Gruesome Massacres to Haunted Hotels and The Swang. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I've recently connected with Derek online, and he's a super nice guy. If you like listening to true crime cases you've probably never heard of before, then you should definitely check out his podcast, Stories After Dark. And now, on to this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Asian Madness Podcast. I've recently moved out of my parents' apartment, so you can say I am once again a full-grown adult where I pay my own rent and I can choose when I want to wear pants and what kind of junk I want to eat. Enough about me, though. I hope you're all doing well and I hope you're ready for today's case because I hadn't heard of this one before and I wish I had looked into it way sooner. I would like to thank listener Chuck from Instagram for suggesting this case and you guys... Thank him too. This is the case of the Visconde massacre that happened in the 90s in Manila, the Philippines. It's really way more than just a massacre, and it's definitely not an open and shut case. So many details, so many people involved, in one way or another, maybe, and so many years of trial and trying to find the truth. At first, this case struck me as a Miyazawa murder-ish case style, but man, it does take another turn. For this case, we will be hanging out in Manila, more specifically an area known as BF Homes Paranaque, which is a gated community and an administrative division in southern Metro Manila. This area was developed by Banco Filipino in the 60s and was considered a very desirable neighborhood to live in back in the 70s. It's a large community, gated, had their own stores, 
and even had their own movie theaters. Kind of like a miniature city. Pretty advanced and probably made people feel safe. Most families living there were at least middle class, and it's also where many Korean immigrants chose to reside in. If you look up photos of the neighborhood, it does actually look really nice. So now that you have some background info on the location, let's get into the case. In the morning hours of June 30, 1991, the police arrived at a house located in BF Homes. It was not a pretty sight, and it was probably shocking to everybody who had to be there. Three of the four Visconde family members were brutally murdered and left in one bedroom. The mother, Estrellita Visconde, 49, had been stabbed multiple times. Both daughters, Carmela, 19, and Jennifer, 7, were also stabbed to death. But Carmela was also raped before she was stabbed to death. The three victims received about a total of 50 stab wounds, which was probably overkill. Worst of all, out of the total 50 stab wounds, 70-year-old Jennifer received about 20 stab wounds total, most of them fatal. The only survivor of this massacre was the father, Lauro Visconde, who was not a person of interest because he was away on business in the United States at the time. Imagine hearing this while you're away. Aside from the three murdered victims, the house was also left in disarray. There were some valuable items and cash missing. A purse was overturned on the dining room table. Many drawers were pulled out and rummaged through. And the front door glass had been broken. What kind of crime do you think this sounds like? Vengeance? Murder? Robbery gone wrong? Robbery with intent to kill and rape? I don't know. But this whole case got me really confused. I went from believing one thing, then changing my mind completely, and now I'm more or less stuck in the middle. I believe it's important to stay as neutral as possible when retelling this story, and get ready because this case has a lot of little details that will boggle your mind. So, who would want to commit such a terrible crime on a seemingly normal family? especially when one of them is literally just a seven-year-old kid. So remember, this was 1991. Forensic evidence like DNA was barely a thing. The Filipino police and the NBI, as in the National Bureau of Investigation, had a difficult time starting out. I mean, not surprised. The attack took place late at night. No witnesses. No one called the police immediately. And it was, well... 1991. The police began to go around asking neighbors to see if they could have seen anyone suspicious or someone they didn't recognize in their neighborhood. So let me start by introducing to you guys four groups of men the police ended up labeling as suspects. Group number one, just a few months after the murder in June, a witness reportedly told the police that they saw five men near the Visconde home on the night of the murder, presumably June 29th. Five men were questioned, and their names were Hubert Webb, Cas Yap, Miguel Rodriguez, Michael Gachalian, and Randolph Nanong. The problem was that Hubert Webb, the main suspect, was not in the Philippines at the time. He claimed to have been in the United States since March of 1991, months before the actual murder, and was still abroad when the murder took place. Okay, so these were just questionings. It was dark, a group of guys might look 
the same to people who don't know them personally. Like when you can't tell boy bands apart because they kind of all look the same to you. Now, let's discuss group number two. October 1991, a group of six robbers were arrested on suspicion for the robbery and murder of the Visconde family. After relentless questioning from the police, four of the six men confessed to the crime. Keyword here is relentless questioning. I can't say for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if the police used some other form of questioning to get answers. But in the end, despite their confession, they all ended up recanting. I suppose you can confess to something, but without the supporting evidence, the confession can still get thrown out, especially when you take it back. As for the third group of suspects, or rather, suspect, was an engineer who took part in designing the Visconde house. He was arrested in June of 1993 after the police lifted his fingerprint off a slightly unscrewed light bulb in the Visconde garage. Unfortunately, that was not enough to convict him as the killer, so he was also let go eventually. Two months later, the fourth group of suspects were also arrested. They were six people in this group and they were known as a group of robbers. Aside from them, the security guard working on June 29, 1991, was also taken in for questioning. Out of the seven people, one man, Cecilia Marcial, became the primary suspect after an anonymous source told the police that Marcial was definitely the man they were looking for. Right now, you might feel slightly confused. So many suspects, no concrete evidence, no convictions. Tons of sketchy characters, for sure, but in the end, nothing of actual value. It's already been around four years since the murder, and clearly it was growing very cold. Man, if only someone could just step up, say something, give evidence, testify, or confess. The case then took a wild-ass turn in early 1995. An informant who had been working with the NBI for a couple years now suddenly told her superiors that she actually had more information about the Visconde murders. Yes, four years after the murder. She said she would try to get the witness known to her to confess, but needed some more time. The police were obviously intrigued because it was a major case and truth is, they had no more leads. The NBI informant Jessica Alfaro was a former drug user and later became a police informant. I guess she wasn't unfamiliar with the drug activities in Metro Manila, so it was useful to have her on the NBI side. She constantly delivered information and helped with battling drug dealers, and that gave her a good name amongst the police. The police continued to wait on Jessica Alfaro to bring the witness in, but she continued to tell them that she was working on it. She didn't want to spook him, so she needed time. Time went on and everyone was growing a little bit impatient, and finally she told them that she was unsuccessful in bringing in the witness. But she had something even better for them. She would provide an affidavit because, shockingly, she was there when the Visconde murders happened. Weird and wild, right? You must have questions like, why did she take so long? Why now? 
is this witness even real? Is this even real? Alfaro executed two affidavits, one in April and one in May of 1995. Both followed a similar timeline of events, but there were some inconsistencies. She explained the inconsistencies away, stating that the first one was done with police officer interference, but the second one was all on her own. So police finally have something rather solid, or rather a new lead to pursue. Alfaro was soon presented to the court as a star witness. Next up, I'm going to tell you what happened that night at the Visconde residence, according to Jessica Alfaro. These court document links I found from the Law Phil project really helped clear up so many issues and helped with the stories and timeline. Remember though, this is the version that Jessica Alfaro told the judges, not necessarily the honest and final story. In the early evening hours of June 29, 1991, Jessica Alfaro, who was a drug addict and not yet a police informant, was riding in her car with her then-boyfriend, Peter Estrada. The two were headed to the Ayala Alabang Commercial Center to meet up with a drug dealer named Artemio Ventura. Once they arrived, drug dealer Ventura introduced a couple to his other six friends, and their names were Hubert Jeffrey Webb, Antonio Lejano, Miguel Rodriguez, Ospicio Fernandez, Michael Gachalian, and Joey Fallard. If the name Hubert Webb rings a bell, that's because I mentioned his name earlier as in he was in the first group of suspects the police approached right after the murders. You know, the one who had a quite solid alibi because he said he was in the United States at the time. In short, he was the son of Freddie Webb, a former senator, congressman, basketball player, actor, and radio personality. Busy man, for sure. But more on that later. Just know that the Webbs are rich and powerful. So the group of nine young people just hung around and did drugs, specifically a drug called Shabu, which is basically meth. During their little party, Hubert Webb approached Jessica Alfaro and asked her to help him deliver a message to a friend of his, a girl named Carmela Visconde. It's unclear at this point as to why he asked her to do such a thing as they've only just met, and according to Jessica, she only knew Carmela in passing. They've been at the same party once or twice, but they weren't friends. Either way, the nine of them got into three cars and headed over to the community of the Visconde residence which according to Google Maps, is about a 15-minute drive. They parked their cars along the street of the Visconde house, but only Jessica got out of the car. She went up to the front door and rang the doorbell. A woman answered the door at first, but later Carmela came over as well. The message was simple, just that Hubert Webb was around if she was available to see him. Carmela allegedly then told Jessica that she had just returned home from a trip and could not leave the house, and she asked him to come back maybe 20 minutes later. Jessica returned to the cars and told Hubert what Carmela had just told her. The three cars then drove away, heading back to the commercial center, and did some more shabu at the parking lot. Sometime later, the group drove again back to the Visconde home, and again, 
Jessica was the one to approach the house. She saw Carmela at the garden, and Carmela then told her that she had to make a quick errand and asked if they could return just before midnight. She also told Jessica that she would leave the side gate open and the kitchen door unlocked. Carmela also asked Jessica that when they did return, that they should blink their headlights twice. This is a very confusing situation indeed. These nine people making multiple trips back and forth. But I guess if it's true, they also could have had nothing better to do, I guess. For some strange reason, Jessica did not drive away immediately. She stayed in her car until Carmela drove away and followed her. Carmela eventually came to a stop and a man got out of her car, and at this point, Jessica automatically assumed it was Carmela's boyfriend. Jessica then returned to find her friend still parked around the Visconde home, and the three cars again headed back to the commercial center for some more shabu time. During the third hangout of the night, Jessica approached Hubert and told him about what she had seen earlier, where Carmela drove off dropping off a guy that she assumed was her boyfriend. Either she's a major gossip machine or she's trying to get closer to Hubert by feeding him gossip. According to Jessica, Hubert's mood seemed to have changed drastically after hearing this, but she just dismissed it as a bad trip. After their drug session, Hubert told his friends that it was time to head over to Carmela's house for the third time that night. Dude just doesn't give up. He also said something along the lines of, I'll go first, about Carmela, which could be hinting at what his plans were for later when he saw her. They all got in their cars again and arrived a bit before midnight, just as Carmela had instructed. After they had parked their cars, Alfaro got out and went through the garden gate which had been left unlocked. Hubert Webb, Antonio Lejano, and Artemio Ventura followed behind her and the four of them arrived at the garage. For some strange reason, Artemio Ventura got on the hood of the Visconde vehicle and half unscrewed the electric light bulb. Maybe he wanted to avoid the lights coming on later? Meaning maybe he was thinking ahead? Anyway, it was a strange and unnecessary move. After passing the garage, they headed toward the kitchen door, and that's when Carmela appeared. Hubert and Carmela supposedly exchanged glances, then headed off into the house together. This was when Jessica decided her job was done, so she headed out of the house to hang out and have a smoke. Right now, it seemed only Webb, Lejano, and Ventura were inside the house while the others were waiting outside. Jessica waited for about 10 minutes and then decided to head back into the house again to check on everybody. When she entered the kitchen, she saw Ventura rummaging through a purse on the kitchen table. Apparently, he was looking for the keys to the front door and to the car, but he was unsuccessful. That's when Jessica suddenly heard a TV static noise, and she headed over to where the noise was coming from. She came upon a bedroom and started hearing weird noises coming from inside, so she got closer and peeked in. What she saw really shocked her, and for a second there, she was unable to look away. It was a bedroom, and on the bed, there were two bloodied and clearly deceased bodies laying on it. Lejano was standing by the bed, and on the ground, 
she saw Hubert Webb on top of a crying and gagged Carmela. Yes, he was raping her. Webb noticed Jessica by the door and, quote, gave a meaningful look. She got the hint and immediately left the house. She then got into the car and sat there thinking, not knowing what to do. A bit later, Webb, Lejano, and Ventura all exited the Visconde home. But before getting into the car, Webb picked up a rock and threw it at the Visconde front door, shattering the glass window pane on it. Before they left, Webb also realized that he had forgotten his jacket inside the house, but Ventura told him not to go back in, that it was way too late for that. So the nine of them drove away and stopped by a large house with a long driveway. Supposedly, a quote-unquote blaming session took place, and the people who were not in the house were horrified to hear about what had happened inside the residence. According to Webb, while he was with Carmela, her mother, Estrellita, came across them, and he had to kill her. He stabbed her to death. Then, as he began assaulting Carmela, the younger sister, Jennifer, woke up and saw that her sister was being attacked, so she jumped at Webb and bit him on the shoulder. This enraged Webb, and he threw her to the wall and stabbed her about 19 times, most of the stabs fatal. After he raped Carmela, he also stabbed her to death because no way he could leave a living witness. So Hubert Webb left behind a jacket. That's pretty damning, right? According to Jessica's story, Webb phoned a police officer at around 2 a.m., Officer Gerardo Biong, and asked him to help. Remember, the Webbs probably had more power than most people, so technically speaking, it wouldn't be surprising if they had connections within the police force and had someone help them with their dirty work. Byung went and retrieved the jacket, and that is probably why there were no clues about the intruders and no evidence whatsoever during the investigation. Alright, so that was Jessica's version. What did you guys think? Did you feel like it all made sense? Any details that stood out to you or made you go, hmm? Well, when I first learned about her version, I have to say, I was like, wow, this makes so much sense. Not as in why they did it, but more like the details did pretty much fit what could have happened. As in, I took it for a possible version of what might have taken place that night. But later on, after finding more information and reading more court documents, it really made me wonder what is even real anymore. The above story was submitted to the court in June 1995, and Jessica Alfaro confirms that the eight men she was with that night were no doubt involved with the massacre at the Visconde residence. The eight men were soon charged with murder and rape and taken into custody. All except Artemio Ventura and Joey Fallard. These two guys were on the run. Oh, and don't forget the police officer that supposedly went back to retrieve Webb's forgotten jacket. He was also arrested for covering up evidence. Okay, quick side note. So you already know Hubert Webb is the son of a man of many professions. Who are these other guys, though? Contrary to what many people might think, most of them are actually from prominent families, some had lawyer parents, actor parents, rich businessman parents, commodore parents, etc. 
it makes sense why they would all be hanging out together, I suppose. Okay, back to the case. So most of these guys did not have a solid alibi when it came to that night. Also, it was like four years ago, and most people could barely even remember where they were a week ago. They all tried coming up with alibis, obviously, but most of them were quite shaky or they couldn't get someone else to fully corroborate their alibi. Definitely does not look good in the eyes of the judges. So let's take a moment to discuss Hubert Webb. Honestly, if just one person had the perfect alibi for that night, the entire story Jessica Alfaro gave would be questioned and possibly would even fall apart. Just one. A solid alibi from Hubert Webb, the guy who was the alleged leader, rapist, and murderer of all three Visconde family members, would work wonders. Oh wait, Hubert Webb did present an alibi. Here's his alibi in more detail. Hubert Webb was sent to the United States on March 9th of 1991 by his parents to go stay with his Aunt Gloria and her family. He traveled with his aunt on a United Airlines flight from Manila to San Francisco. Like any normal person going through airports, he went through Philippine immigration where he got a stamp on his passport. After a 12 to 14 hour flight, he got off the plane and went through U.S. immigration. He received a United States Immigration and Naturalization Service document, which basically proved that he entered the United States on said day in March. During his time in the U.S., he spent time with his family, went to the beach, played basketball, and even worked at his relative's pest control company. He also visited various places including Lake Tahoe, Anaheim Hills, got himself a driver's license, and on June 28th, a day before the murders took place, Webb's parents went to visit him and even got him a car. In late 1991, he moved down to Florida for a few months, returned to California again in August of 1992, then finally returned to the Philippines in October of 1992. So, his word against Jessica's. So you see, this case was definitely a mess, and people were beginning to take sides. But it mattered more what side the court took. Let's jump back to 1995, where all seven of the accused pled not guilty. The court mostly became a battleground between Jessica's testimony and Hubert Webb's alibi. Honestly, if his alibi withstood the test of the court, it would not be likely any of them could be convicted. I assume some of you are thinking, dude, the guy has immigration stamps and everything. How can you even forge that? And sure, the guy is the kid of an important guy, but is he so important that he could make changes on both the Philippine immigration's records and the United States immigration records? I mean, maybe, yeah, but definitely sounds risky. Imagine all the people that would have to be involved. During the trial for the murder and rape of the Visconde family, Webb's alibi was rejected and considered weak at best. Their reasoning was that Jessica Alfaro had made a positive identification of him at the scene of crime. I know how this sounds, unfair, and slightly biased. Jessica Alfaro made a positive identification, yes, but you can also turn that around and ask the same question. How can you positively prove that her words are true? 
And even if Hubert Webb had documents proving he was not in the Philippines during the murders, the court came up with two possibilities for that. The first, I mentioned already, as in forged documents. His dad is rich, well-connected, and quite powerful. It wouldn't be impossible for Freddie Webb to pay someone off to make it seem like his son was in the United States during the murders. The Philippines does unfortunately suffer from corruption, as you may have already noticed from the Peter Scully case. But then again, this is a theory. There is no proof that the documents and stamps are fake. The second possibility would be that Hubert Webb did in fact go to the United States, but he actually made a trip back to the Philippines sometime in June, committed the murders, then returned to the United States again. Maybe he didn't travel all the way back just to murder a family. Maybe it was just something that went wrong during his trip back. But assuming this is a possibility, there are no records of Hubert Webb entering or leaving the Philippines or the U.S. around that time. So in the end, it's really all speculation. You would think that having passport stamps and CCTV footage of a person leaving and entering a country is sufficient proof, but not in this case. The prosecution insists that either the documents were forged or that Webb traveled back before the murders. They also brought up the fact that the U.S. Immigration Office kind of went back and forth on whether or not they had Webb's records. From my understanding of their misunderstanding, it seems that the U.S. Immigration keeps separate records of visitors and immigrants. Hubert Webb was a visitor, not an immigrant, and that was argued as to why they could have missed finding his records in the system, because they were simply looking in the wrong place. Jessica Alfaro's testimonies were quite well received in court, and she was said to have made a positive identification of the suspects. There are two criteria that need to be met for a positive identification to be accepted. First, the witness has to be credible. The definition might be a bit blurry because what exactly makes a person credible anyway? I guess the easiest way would be to look at their history and if they've always been on the right side of the law. No criminal records, all that. The second criteria would be that the story provided by the witness must be credible. In other words, sometimes people falsify stories or add details in order to fit the situation sometimes even going overboard with the details. If it sounds off, there's probably a good chance that something may not fit completely right. As for Jessica Alfaro, she was a drug addict. She knew, everybody knew. In many ways, that kind of deems her as a less credible witness. Her version of what happened that night wasn't exactly far-fetched or weird, but there were certain details of her story that were questioned. For one thing, at the crime scene, the glass pane on the front door of the Visconde home was broken by a rock. According to Jessica, Webb threw the rock at the house after they were all outside and ready to leave. If you were ready to run and were already outside, would you throw a rock at a glass, shattering it and risk having the neighbors hear that? Also, the dining room table indeed had a purse open with items scattered all over the table. According to Jessica Alfaro, 
Ventura had rummaged through the bag looking for the keys to the front door. What for? They were already inside the house. Lastly, Jessica included a detail about her following Carmela out of her house and seeing her drop off a male companion. Then she went back to her friends and told Hubert about that, saying he got visibly upset. According to both Carmela and Hubert's friends, the two were not dating. I mean, yeah, it could have been a secret affair, so the whole jealous boyfriend gone insane would work in this scenario. But if the two were not dating or even knew each other, why would this detail bother him at all? And why does Jessica Alfaro feel the need to report this to Webb? It's little things like these that made people doubt her story, as it did feel like she was trying to force her story to fit in with the crime scene, sometimes by adding extra details. One more awkward thing. Jessica Alfaro had been doing a great job working as an informant up until early 1995. She had gone weeks without providing any useful information to the police, and the police even began to make fun of her. Then suddenly, she told them she actually knew a witness from the Visconde murder, and that's how the ball started rolling. Take it as you will. I'm only here giving you the timeline and the facts. If you think Jessica's story is not really credible, well, she actually had other witnesses backing up her claims. The ex-girlfriend of police officer Byung testified that in the early morning of June 30th, 1991, Byung had received a call at around 2 a.m. and the couple went to retrieve a jacket and a weapon at the Visconde home. Then they made a stop to pick up money, which she realized was money from the Webbs. Another witness was a live-in maid of the Webb residence. She testified that Hubert Webb was home on June 30th, and when she was doing laundry at around 4 a.m., she noticed that Hubert was awake and pacing around his room, looking nervous and agitated. She also noticed that he had bloodstains on his shirt. Then we have the two security guards from the community working that night shift. Both testified that they indeed did see the three cars that Jessica Alfaro described entering the community, and days before the murder... Hubert Webb had also driven into the community, and when questioned by a guard, he explained that he was Hubert Webb, son of Senator Freddie Webb. One security guard also confirmed that the first police officer to arrive at the crime scene was indeed Officer Byung. Are you confused yet? As you can see, this trial was crazy and was possibly coined as the Filipino trial of the century. I can totally see why. The trial dragged on for years. Finally, on January of 2000, the judge found Hubert Webb, Peter Estrada, Hospicio Fernandez, Michael Gachalian, Antonio Lejano, and Miguel Rodriguez guilty of rape and murder. All six men were sentenced to reclusion perpetual, which is basically life imprisonment. As for Officer Byung, he was sentenced to 11 years for tampering with evidence. The judge explained that the alibis presented by the defense team were not solid and had many inconsistencies. For example, when friends and relatives of Hubert Webb were called to testify, they all gave varying accounts of what Hubert was doing at a specific time frame in the U.S. For the prosecution and the judge, it just seemed shady. 
as for CCTV footage and immigration documents, those could probably be forged. I mean, yeah, sure, but there is still no proof of that. As for other things that couldn't be explained away, the prosecution team chalked it up to the webs being rich and powerful, aka paying their way out of it. But we are not done. As you remember, Carmela had been raped and semen had been found on her. The specimen had supposedly been taken and stored away just in case. Obviously in the 90s, technology wasn't that advanced, so they couldn't do much with that. But then in 2010, Hubert Webb's defense team was granted a request to have the specimen submitted for DNA testing. So now we could finally know once and for all if it matched any of the accused. Except the specimen was lost. The NBI was like, wait, no, we gave it to the trial court. And the trial court checked their records and they were like, no way, man, we don't have it either. So basically, no one had it. And this was Hubert Webb's chance. He filed a motion for acquittal. Because of the lost evidence, he now did not have any means to prove his innocence and neither could it prove his guilt. So what happened? In December of 2010, all seven men were acquitted of the crime. We all know that in order to convict a person, there shouldn't be any lingering doubt as to his guilt. But so many times we overlook this. Do I find Jessica's story sketchy? Yes. Do I find Hubert Webb's story odd? Also, yes. But being weird and odd isn't a crime, and it doesn't mean you're guilty or you're a liar or a murderer. Hubert Webb and his friends have always maintained their innocence, and Jessica Alfaro continues to insist that her story was true. She was said to be disappointed in the acquittal, but she did what she could. As for the public, they were also torn between the acquittal. Obviously, all of the Webb's family and friends were ecstatic, and several other politicians, celebrities, and activists showed support. The person who was most heartbroken over the acquittal was, of course, Lauro Visconde, the sole survivor of the massacre. He had to live through so many years of not knowing what happened, then going through the whole trial that took more years than this acquittal. He strongly believed that there's a lot of corruption going on behind the scenes and would not be surprised if money was used to buy off judges and decisions. He tried to reverse the acquittal, but it was denied due to the double jeopardy law. Other activist groups and politicians, etc. also showed dismay at the acquittal. This case was so flawed and strange, I'm not surprised people were so divided. It was far from open and shut. Lauro Visconde founded the Volunteers Against Crime and Corruption after the massacre and has worked tirelessly trying to help himself and other families suffering through similar tragedies. He suffered a series of heart attacks and passed away on February 13, 2015. He was buried along with his wife and daughters. He never got closure. Hubert Webb continues to live in the Philippines and has even dedicated part of his time to help others in need. He married a woman he met while he was still in prison in the year 2016. She was a widow and strongly believed in his innocence. She pretty much waited for him to get out of prison and the two started a relationship. When asked about her best quality, Hubert answered, 
Quote, she reminds me of my mom. I think that's the best compliment I can give her. End quote. I hope she agrees, man. As for pop culture, why yes, this was made into a movie. No, two movies. One in 1993 called The Visconde Massacre Story, in quotations, God help us. And another one in 1994 called The Untold Story, Visconde Massacre 2, May the Lord Be With Us. Isn't it interesting how these two movies have such similar names? So there you have it, the still unsolved murder of the three Visconde family members. This case went through so many ups and downs, and only to end up with no real conclusion. I admit, I went from believing Jessica Alfaro, then to Webb, and now I don't know what's what. A lot of back and forth. Regardless of Hubert Webb's guilt or innocence, it does make a good story thinking of him and his family as the villain. You know, the rich family who tries to get away with everything by using money as their weapon. The spoiled son who doesn't follow rules, does drugs, kills people, only to wait for his parents to bail him out. That is the kind of person people love to hate on. But then again, just because he's rich, doesn't mean he is a murderer. Jessica Alfaro also had her sketchy moments, no doubt. You don't have to make up your mind right now. This is a tough case, and unless someone confesses, I don't really see this getting solved. I sometimes even wonder if they really lost the semen specimen, or they, you know, lost it. There were many more details from the court documents and other online sources. And if you want to form your own opinion, I highly suggest you do some more digging. If Hubert Webb and friends are indeed innocent, then great. If not, that sucks. Either way, remember the true victims of this case: Estrellita, Carmela, and Jennifer Visconde. So please stay away from drugs and be nice to your friends and family. Sorry for the wait. I know I took an extra week, but thank you for tuning in. Till next time. Now, before I go, I would like to thank the following people for their reviews. From the U.S., there is O.K. Fish Lice, Sam underscore Hobbs, Anime, and from Malaysia, Zuvin and Wander underscore Stan. From the Philippines, La Six, and from Russia, Tasho, and Six Ones. Thank you guys so very much. You're so kind, and I would like to thank Culture Queen for donating to my Patreon. I truly appreciate the support. I would also like to thank Mina from True Crime Finland for helping me set up a website for my podcast. And if you guys are interested in checking that out, please click on the link below. I will have that in the episode notes. So thank you guys. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod@gmail.com.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.